I got my start in ministry as a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for, I don't know, like 16 years. It was quite a while. And I gotta tell you, I was a pretty good youth pastor. Part of the way I know I was a pretty good youth pastor was because every single year, sometimes multiple times a year, I would take my students to play paintball. I'm telling you, If you don't go play paintball as a youth pastor, I don't think you deserve the title. And it was good for the kids because they had a lot of fun, but it was good for me too because if there were some punks in the group that had been giving me trouble over the months leading up to it, I could target them. You know what I'm saying? I would see somebody on the other team, some girl who'd never caused any issue in the youth group at all. And I'm like, go ahead, go ahead, sweetie. I'm after him, you know? So one day I took our youth group to go play paintball and we were in Florida and we played on what's called a woods course. A woods course essentially means that you go out into the woods and one team goes on this side of the field and this team stays on this side. There aren't really bunkers. There's not like blow up inflatables to hide behind. You've got brush and trees. This is old school combat, right? So uh, we've got our team separated and they blow the whistle. This was like the first or second match of the day. And I got a really good idea in my head. I thought to myself, I'm not gonna do what all these other dummies do and just like run right down the middle of the field. I'm gonna do something really sneaky. I'm gonna go around to the side boundary of this paintball field and then I'm gonna flank everybody and then I'm gonna turn and I'm just gonna be like, you know? And I'm gonna lay waste to some of these kids. Also, some of our adults who hadn't been, you know, so great over the last year. I was just gonna get my revenge. I was waiting for this moment. So I took my, uh, my flanking maneuver and I'm creeping through the woods. You know, you've got a mask on, I'm in full camo, like I'm going all out on this thing. So I'm creeping and I'm creeping and I'm creeping. And after a while, I'm like, yo, I've been creeping a while. Like I haven't seen anybody and I should have hit the other end of the field by now. I should have seen somebody. I'm like, but you know, I mean, maybe I did, the field's bigger than I realized. And so I keep creeping and I keep creeping and I'm, I'm going and going and going and going. And then at some point I stop and I look around And I'm in the middle of the woods and I have no clue where I am. It's very clear at this moment that I am no longer on the paintball field. uh, Somehow I'd gotten out of bounds and I didn't know it. And by by the time I turned around and I'm trying to figure out, I was totally disoriented. Had no clue which way was back the direction I came or further out in the woods somewhere. And I started freaking out a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've ever been lost in the woods, but it's a scary experience. So I was like, okay, Daniel, don't lose your stuff here. Like you need to keep it cool. There's probably some way you can figure out which way is north, south, east, and west. And if you can figure that out, then perhaps you'd be able to figure out which way to go back. So I'm sitting there in the middle of the woods, a city boy, and I'm like, all right, how can I figure this out? So the sun looks like it's in the two thirds easterly quadrant over there. And I know in North America, moss grows on the north side of trees, right? Or is it south side? Crap, I forgot. Oh man. And I'm trying to remember the weather report for that day. I'm like, they said the wind was gonna be coming from a south, southwesterly direction, you know? And I'm trying to read all of these signs and quite frankly, it doesn't get me anywhere. So I'm wandering in the woods, wishing I could read the evidence, but totally unable to for hours, Now, I I, I don't want you guys to worry too much because I eventually found my way home, okay? I'm not still lost in the woods in Florida. Two and a half hours later, I made my way back to the base camp for the paintball fields. And you want to know the worst part of it all? I'd been gone for two and a half hours. We were only playing four hours of paintball, okay? And when I got back, not a single person had realized I was missing. None of my kids... None of my adult volunteers, 
None of the paintball marshals, not even my wife had noticed that I was castaway style in the woods with nobody to help me but myself. It was tough. I wished I could have read the evidence and gotten where I wanted to go, but I just didn't have the skills. I couldn't do it. This is week four of our series called Reasons to Believe. And what we're trying to do in this series is to help you to see that there is evidence all around you of God's existence. It's all over the place, but many of you may not know how to read or interpret the evidence that exists. And consequently, you might have begun to believe, well, there is no evidence for God. Outside of the Bible, there's no rational reason for anyone to believe that a God could exist. And so in this series, what we're trying to do is help you to read the evidence. We're trying to show you that there is a rational basis for having a faith in God. Now, each week I've given you two quick caveats on what this series can do and what it can't do. So first things first, I want you to know that I'm sharing evidence with you and not proof. So there's no way I will ever prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that God exists. Nobody can do that. And so if you think, well, I'll only believe when somebody proves it, you're never gonna believe. Okay? Instead, we look at the evidence that exists and we determine, does this evidence best fit a supernatural worldview or a natural worldview? A worldview with God or without God? So this is evidence, it's not proof. If you walk out this morning and you're like, you didn't convince me, I'm like, I know. I wasn't saying I was going to convince you. I was saying I was gonna try. Now, the second thing that I'll tell you about this series is that it is designed to be a discussion and not a debate. If you're a skeptic here, I'm not here to tell you why you're wrong and you're a bad person and I've got all the answers because I don't have like any answers at all, okay? So this is designed to stimulate discussion, maybe between me and you. And if if there's something I say that piques your curiosity or you wanna argue with me or you need clarification, you can email me. My email address, my personal email address is dan at Connect Calgary. Many of you have taken advantage of that this past few weeks. Thank you, I've been glad to get your messages. Somebody told me I did some wrong math on the screen the other day. So, you know, It's there. If you want to contact me, you can do that, okay? But I also want this to stimulate discussion maybe between you and your friend or your spouse or maybe, just maybe even between you and God. So those are our two caveats. I can't prove anything to you. I just want to point out some evidence and you can draw your own conclusions. And if you want to have a further conversation, I am very, very open to that, okay? So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the argument from morality, the argument from morality. So essentially what we're going to try to do is we're going to see if there might be some evidence for God's existence Existence that comes from humanity's sense of right and wrong. Uh, how many of you guys were here last week? Okay, a whole bunch of you guys are. Can we go back one slide? Thanks. A whole bunch of you guys were, and that's good because last week I gave you some evidence that showed that there is no difference, no discernible difference anyway, between the morality of Christians and non-Christians, religious people and non-religious people. The evidence that I showed you, the research that's been done basically says, you know what? You can be good without God. You can, you can do good things for the world. You can be good without God. You can also be good with God. You can be very evil with God. You can be evil without God, 
Okay, so the, the idea that our morality is designed by our faith or defined by our faith system, it doesn't really hold up when we look at the evidence. There is no difference between the morality or the virtue of Christians and non-Christians at large. And it might surprise you to learn that that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? The Bible actually says that... Um, This idea of virtuous living, of morality, wanting to do good and help one another and uh, thinking that it's a bad idea to harm one another, this is a part of what, what we call God's common grace. That God gives gifts to humanity that exist independent of whether or not you acknowledge him or him as the source of your blessings. So the same is true of like food. Everybody gets food. God's not like, oh, you don't believe in me? Well, let's see how long you do without food. He doesn't do that. He gives good gifts to everybody. It's part of his common grace. Family, joy. We could go on and on and on, but God gives gifts to everybody regardless of what they believe. And so we would expect that there would be very moral people who were followers of Jesus and there are very moral people who are not followers of Jesus. But There is a fundamental issue that starts to creep up when we discuss morality. And that's this. Where in the world does our sense of morality even come from? Where do we get this idea that there is right and wrong? There are good ways to live and bad ways to live. Who decided what constitutes a moral life? Who was it that decided that morality is better than immorality? Where did that idea come from? If we were to put it a little bit differently, we might ask the question, like, how did we ever come to believe that traits like generosity and love and forgiveness are qualities that we should have? Where did we get the idea that there is some sort of moral obligation on humanity to be good and to do good towards one another? Now, my guess is, this isn't going to be a huge spoiler, that as a Christian, you know that I believe that sense of morality came from God. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means and what it doesn't mean in a moment. But I've had lots of conversations with skeptical people, people who come from a very humanist or naturalist perspective on this. And when I asked them, how did we develop this sense of morality? Where did our concept of good and evil come from in the first place? I generally get two answers. And maybe these are the first two places that your mind went. A naturalist might say that one explanation for our sense of moral obligation in the world is due to nature. That is, it is a product of our evolutionary development, right? So maybe you've heard this. I've heard this and read it in textbooks, seen it in lectures, and I've had people say it to me. Basically, the argument goes like this, that altruistic behavior, selfless, moral, good behavior, that it allows our species to survive better. And so people who exhibit this altruism, this morality, this virtue, that if we do that, then natural selection would prefer us, those kinds of people, because it allows our species to be better adapted for survival. Okay, that sounds reasonable at first, but if you really start to examine it, it kind of falls apart, or at least it does in my mind. Because if you know anything about natural selection, 
you know that natural selection does not favor the advancement of species. It only favors the survival of individuals. It doesn't care if the human species survives. It cares whether or not as we as individuals are able to pass on our genetic material down the line. That's all it's concerned with. So here's the thing. Morality often calls us to act in ways that are bad for me individually, but good for the group as a whole, right? If I'm selfless, then I'm not being selfish. Selfish would actually be quite good for Daniel, but selfless is good for everybody else in my tribe or my city or even humanity as a whole. So the weird thing is, We have this worldview that says you are developed and your sense of right and wrong, it comes from a natural um, genetic impulse that says that you should take care of one another in order to survive. But when we look at the rest of nature, nature does not operate according to that particular um, rubric, does it? Like, there, there are no animals that are like, I'll sacrifice myself for you. Not, not generally, right? Instead, we see nature is red in tooth and claw. We see Richard Dawkins writing books called The Selfish Gene. We see Darwin talking about the survival of the fittest. And so we've got this worldview that says maybe, just maybe, our sense of right and wrong came about through evolution and our genetic makeup. But we don't see that same thing happening in any other species in the plant or animal kingdom at all. Instead, we see animals acting in their own best interest, and we have this sense that somehow we should put others ahead of ourselves. Yes, that might allow the species to survive, but what benefit of that is there to you? I mean, if nature is violent, why should I be kind? Why should I be kind if nature is violent? There's no crocodile that's like, I should really be kind to this gazelle. It doesn't exist. That impulse is not there, right? Um, you know, I mean, like, if, if nature is selfish, why should we be generous? If, you know, if, if nature is self-interested, then why is it that if some, you know, body falls through thin ice, people will put themselves at risk. They'll scramble out on the ice and try to pull that person out. They're putting their own life at risk, their own ability to pass on their genetic material down the line, but they do it because there is this sense within them that says, I should. I ought to. Where does that come from? I think, like for me, I think that that comes from this divine imprint of God. That our heavenly father has told us what is good, what is right, what is helpful, what is noble, and the way that we should live in the world. But if there is no God and our morality is simply the result of our genetic programming over time, it just seems very odd to me that natural selection and genetics would produce in us behaviors that are the opposite of everything else that we see in nature. So I don't find that argument particularly convincing. Maybe I'm missing something. You can tell me if I am. But then I talk to other skeptics and they're like, yeah, 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 I don't really think it comes from nature. I think it comes from nurture, right? Like maybe morality is a construct that humanity or society has devised. So let's put that one there on the screen. All right. Maybe we didn't get it from our genetics or at least not even primarily. Maybe it's something that humanity has developed because this is what we need in order to survive. This was John Locke's whole theory of the social contract, right? And this has become the dominant thinking in the 21st century. We're kind of like, yeah, at some point in our ancient past or even in the present, humans decided what would 
would be good conduct, what would be moral and virtuous ways of living. And so we are following this construct that humanity has developed. Um, We see this really playing out a lot in the 21st century. This is the dominant way of thinking. Um, In in so much as you watch our culture, and in in 2019, we are rejecting all of these so-called traditional values, right? We're like, all the things that people may have believed for hundreds or thousands of years, that's no longer true. And I get it. As soon as I say that, there's some of you guys in the theater and you're like, oh, I know what he's talking about. And in your mind, you're thinking that I'm making some social commentary on some hot button issue or whatever. I'm not. In fact, I'm not even saying that the social or cultural revolution that we've experienced in the last 50 years is all bad. It's not. Quite frankly, there are some parts of what we have deemed traditional values that are not biblical values and they need it to go, okay? So I'm not like, please don't think, oh, he's secretly, he's very subtly saying these people or that kind of life. I'm not, okay? What I am saying though, is the fact that we are seeing so much change in morality and values and what the world deems as virtuous living, it comes from the idea that humanity believes they have the right to construct and reconstruct values over time. But I gotta tell you, this one also suffers from, I don't know, some pretty serious flaws, okay? How does society decide what is good and bad? How, how do we, nobody came and asked me, I didn't get a vote, did you get a vote? I don't remember that. I don't remember us getting together and raising our hand or even marking a ballot saying, this is good, this is bad, this is what we want, this is what we don't. And I gotta tell you, if we leave it up to the majority, we get, and we've done this before in history, we get some really ugly results. Do you know if you let the majority of a population decide what morality is going to be and not be, you get 19th century slavery in the United States. That's what happens when majority gets to decide what's right and wrong. When you let the majority decide what's right and wrong, what's virtuous and what's not, you know what you get? You get the 1990s genocide in Rwanda. That's that's what happens People will use their majority power and they will take it at the expense of minority populations. But hey, listen, it's not just like in democracy and stuff like that. If we leave it to the government and we say, government, part of your job is to define what is good and bad, right and wrong, moral and immoral in our society. You know what we've seen? We've seen the forced relocation and the residential schooling of indigenous people in Canada. That's what happens when we say, government, you do what you think is best. Too close to home, maybe. If we leave it to the military, and we've done this before as humanity, we're like, okay, might makes right, power gives you the opportunity. And if we do that, we get the gas chambers of World War II. Like quite frankly, humanity has an awful track record when it comes to defining morality. We may have even started with good intentions in some, not all, but some of these circumstances. But it seems like the more authority and responsibility and opportunity we give to people to define and redefine good and bad in our society, the more often it tends towards bad instead of good. It's a real problem. So if if 
morality is just a cultural construct, we have to ask the question, how does society decide? And there's really not a strong answer for that. But there's another problem that comes up, and that is that if society decided what is good and bad, right and wrong, immoral, moral, all that sort of stuff, then society can re-decide. It can change its mind. And the things that were once, once virtuous are no longer. And this can get really, really crazy if you take it to its natural extreme. So let me run you through a very weird thought experiment. I want you to think about the movie, the horror movie, The Purge. I won't ask you if you've seen it, you know, but think about the horror movie, The Purge, okay? It's actually a pretty decent social commentary, but I'm not recommending it. So here's the thing. If you've never seen this movie, the idea is that the world has decided, or a country has decided rather, that for 12 hours each year, Any sort of crime, even violent crime like murder and armed robbery or rape, whatever, all of it is legal for a 12-hour period, okay? So let's imagine for a moment that Canada decided somehow that this was a good idea and they put this, actually, you know what? It's probably pretty unlikely in Canada, but the U.S. seems to be headed that way pretty quickly. So let's imagine you're an American and you're living in the U.S. and they decide that they're going to implement this law that we see illustrated in The Purge. Is there anybody in the theater that would say, you know what? I think that murder or violence against women and children would be okay if society made it legal. Anybody? No, because we know intuitively that those things are wrong. It doesn't matter if society says it's right. It doesn't matter if white people in the 1900s said slavery was okay. It doesn't matter if the Hutus said we can murder the Tutsis. It doesn't matter what they say. We have this sense deep, deep in our soul that there is stuff that is right and there are things that are wrong. And it doesn't matter what the world says. There is this sense inside of us. So there's one more issue we've got to deal with here. Like if society, well, let me back up. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. We're asking the question, where does our morality come from? It could be genetic, but that's weird because natural selection doesn't produce selfless behavior. It produces selfish behavior, opposite of morality. It could be cultural, but the problem is we can't define or decide how, de- uh, how society will build up a, a concept of morality. And We run into issues when society recreates morality. We know that that can't really hold true across the board. And then the final thing is this. When two ideas of morality or right and wrong values, when they compete against one another, how do we arbitrate which one is correct? How do we decide, no, that's the morality that we're going to follow? Now, this might sound like an academic exercise, but I'll tell you, it is not. Right now, China is in the spotlight because they are trampling human rights on the mainland and in their island protectorates as well. And countries like Canada and the U.S., we're looking at China and we're like, you can't treat your people that way. You have to stop that. They have rights, human rights that you can't violate. And you know what China's doing? They're looking back at us and they're like, Who are you to tell us how to govern our people? Why don't you worry about your country? We'll worry about our country. You can define what's right and wrong for your people, but we will define as a society and a culture what is right and wrong for our people. Now listen, if morality is a cultural construct, then we have no way to tell China that they are wrong. 
that there are human rights that exist whether or not the, the country decides to grant them or recognize them. They are there and they shouldn't. But just run yourself through this little argument in your head without appealing to any outside standard of morality. Try to convince China in your head that they should stop abusing people. You cannot do it. Because they're always going to come back and they're going to say, well, that's your morality, but it's not mine. And yours is no better than mine is. We get into this situation where morality eventually becomes meaningless. And if you've been paying attention, we're headed pretty quickly that way. So when we start wrestling through this question of like, how did we get this sense of right and wrong? and How do we justify living morally as opposed to immorally with a naturalistic worldview? We genuinely run into some problems. Now look, I told you earlier that I think like we have this sense of morality because God gave it to us. And so just for the sake of clarity, I wanna walk you through the argument from morality real quick. It's very straightforward. It's, you know, it's pretty simple. Morality, the first presumption says, morality cannot exist without an independent lawgiver. Now, I know you guys are like, I don't believe that. We'll get there, okay? Secondly, morality exists. Therefore, there must be an independent lawgiver. This is what the argument states. This is what I would believe as a Christian. And I recognize that if you're a skeptic, you might not agree with those premises, number one and number two, particularly number one. Now, most people will accept number number two is true, right? Morality exists, but not everybody. If you do some reading on this sort of stuff, then you'll find out that there are lots and lots of philosophers in 2019 that are following the example of Nietzsche who said, God is dead, We've killed him. Therefore, there can be no moral facts. Morality does not exist. There are lobbyists, there are philosophers, there are authors in our country today, and they say we should stop using the word ought or should because there is no moral obligation. I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything. We'll do what we each think is right. But most people can't live that way. Most people would agree, yeah, I think morality exists on some level. It's just a question of who gets to decide. But you might disagree with number one, that morality cannot, be, it cannot exist without an independent lawgiver, okay? And if that's you, then I just, I just want to challenge you very lovingly. We can start a conversation around this thing. But prove that statement wrong. Prove one and two as wrong without any sort of circular logic. Prove to me that morality can exist without an independent lawgiver and not be an illusion because it's simply like the the thing that happens because of the chemicals in our brain or that it is temporary and it can be changed by society at will. Try to verify or justify that one of those two things is not true and you'll have a real hard time with that. C.S. Lewis is a really famous author and philosopher. I kind of have a man crush on him. He was a smart dude. And um, he's most well known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. But if you roll in Christian circles, you know he wrote some of the most important works of the 20th century um, on faith. He was a professor in Oxford and he um, he was an atheist for most of his life. But he eventually came to faith later in his adulthood. And he writes in this masterpiece work called Mere Christianity, he writes about how it was the consideration of morality. Where does our sense of good and wrong come from? And he decided if it didn't come from God, then it was probably an illusion. And so we should stop even pretending to be moral. But he knew that he couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. 
So I want you to look at what he writes here. This is a bit of a lengthy passage, but I think it's pretty important. He writes in this book, look, everyone has heard people quarreling. They see things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Hey, why should you shove in like that? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised me. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grownups. He says, now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to already know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it about which they really agreed. And if they have, uh, and they have, if they had not, they might, of course, they might fight like animals, right? Going back to the nature argument. But they could not quarrel in the human sense of the world because quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense of trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. So it seems then we are forced to believe in a real capital R right and a capital W wrong. People may sometimes be mistaken about them just as people are sometimes getting their sums wrong, their math problems, right? Just because a grade three kid gets the multiplication table wrong doesn't mean the multiplication table itself does not exist. It just means he got it wrong. But they are not a mere matter of taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. He then goes on to write how this realization, it actually defeated his primary argument against faith in God. Look at what he writes a little bit later. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just? and unjust. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? See, there is this sense of morality that exists in our world. And if we've created it, then we can uncreate it. But if it exists independent of us, that would give solid evidence for why we feel a moral obligation and why this moral obligation seems to be fairly consistent across the vast majority of human societies. Now, look, I got to wrap this thing up, okay? Um, but I want to clarify one quick thing before I read a Bible passage and we're done. Oftentimes, when Christians make the argument from morality, people misunderstand what they are saying. Okay? And I want to be incredibly clear here that I am not saying that you need God in order to be moral. That if you are here and you're a skeptic, you're not a Jesus person, maybe you're a Hindu, maybe you're an agnostic, you must be a bad person because without God, you must be immoral. That is not at all my point. My point is we don't need God to be moral. We need God to justify being moral. Without God, there is no justification for saying we should, or we ought, we must, I need to be good to you, or you need to be good to me. If we are all just evolved animals, then why don't we act like evolved animals? If, if morality is simply a human construct, then the things that you are certain are wrong in every time and place, no matter what, they're actually not wrong, they're just wrong to you in 2019. And they could be okay in the future if society decided they were okay. 
But this argument, it doesn't say that good people are Christians and you know non-Christians are bad people or even that this is something that I get accused of a lot. Well, you need a book to tell you how to be good. No, that's not the point. The point is we all have this inborn sense of morality and we have to ask the question, where does it come from? Why are we certain that morality is real and that we should act in virtuous and kind and generous ways? Because the naturalistic explanation for morality is at best utilitarian. It's like, well, it serves us, so we should do it, but you don't have to. You could do whatever you think is best in your own eyes. And we see people living that out even in 2019. Here's the thing. Nobody or almost nobody in the world actually lives this way. We have this sense of right and wrong. We know that human rights are real. It doesn't matter if a government refuses to recognize them. They're there. They exist independent of that society's designation. We believe intuitively that kindness is better than violence. We know that equality is better than slavery. And we teach our kids that sacrifice is better than greed. So what I notice, and maybe you do too, is that our world lives with this cognitive dissonance where our worldview says morality is at best temporary, at worst it's an illusion, and so we should do what is in our own best interest. But none of us can bring ourselves to live that way. And if somebody does live that way, do you know what we do to them? We lock them in a cage. Why? Because I believe our Heavenly Father has implanted inside of all of us a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, the way that we should or ought to live in the world. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter number two. I wonder if you've ever seen this passage before. Paul says, when outsiders, and this is his word for people who are non-religious, non-Christian people. He says, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without. You don't need the Bible to understand morality. It's been given to you by God. It has been woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and God's no and God's sense of right and See, Paul came to the conclusion that we need to be moral, we need to be good, we need to be virtuous to one another because we were designed to be good and virtuous and moral towards one another. We should be because that is what God has woven into the fabric of our creation. Paul points out that Christians are not out here trying to like impose their morality on the rest of the world. What we're pointing out is that God has placed a sense of morality in every single one of us. And our compass may have gotten off track just a little bit, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a compass at all. And it doesn't mean that we should ignore it. Fact, I would just argue, the reason that we refuse to live out the naturalistic implications of our worldview is because we do not want to live in a world that is purely natural. Instead, I believe every person, even skeptics and atheists, deep down inside, want a world that is characterized by the qualities exhibited 
by Jesus himself. In Ephesians chapter number five, scripture says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And in brackets there, I've kind of highlighted what amount to the values of God's kingdom, the morality of a Jesus follower. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Apparently God values relationship quite a bit. And walk in love. Love is a central value of what it means to be a Christian. As Christ loved us, so important he said it twice, and gave himself in God's kingdom, generosity is a primary value. He gave himself up for us. He made a fragrant offering. Fragrant means sweet smelling. That means beauty is important in God's kingdom. And Jesus sacrificed himself to God on our behalf. He was selfless and he lived in service of something bigger than himself. Now listen, I don't care who you are. Like unless you are the, unless you're like a misanthrope, you hate humanity, okay? Every single one of us, regardless of our religious beliefs, we want to live in that kind of world where there is community and there's love and generosity and beauty and selflessness and living in service of something greater than yourself. If you are a skeptic, tell me why I should do any of those things in your worldview. But if you're a Christian, we do it because it's a reflection of our heavenly father. And it actually is the way that we were designed to live all along. So when we invite you to become a follower of Jesus, we're not asking you to give yourselves to a bunch of rules and pressures and external morality. Instead, what we're asking you to do is to recognize the knowledge of your heavenly father that's been in you since the day you were born and to acknowledge the reason that you've been trying to live a good life this whole time is because that's what your father has called you to. And you will never be an integrated, fully whole person. You will never be able to get past the cognitive dissonance of the worldview that's been given to you by your school system and your society and the media. You'll never be able to get past it until you acknowledge that morality is real and the source is our good father in heaven who wants the best for his children here on earth. Father, I pray that you would give us insight through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray we would acknowledge you as the true lawgiver, that God, you want what's best for us. And I pray that we would give it all to you, God, trusting and believing that as our heavenly father, you love us and you wanna show us the best way to live. We pray this in your name, amen. 